Amen. Yeah, yeah. How many of you have a thousand dominoes in your basement? Set them up. Well, this morning we have a very special guest speaker. And Prem Isaac uh, used to attend our church. And then he went down to South North Carolina to study and get his master's degree in philosophy with uh, a very much accent on apologetics. And he has been studying for many years and now has his master's degree in philosophy and apologetics. And he has done a phenomenal job. He um, actually comes out of Bethlehem Assembly of God. And when he went to the school that he was attending, um, they didn't have a missions program. And uh, so being uh, out of Bethlehem Assembly of God and being a person that has a passion for missions, uh, he said, why don't we start to use apologetics around the world. And so actually he has set up missions teams to go around the world today to help people to be educated in the area of apologetics. And he leaves uh, tomorrow to go to Amsterdam uh, to be a part of a team. And so I know today that you're going to be blessed by what he has to say. We've been talking about the tough questions of life. And if you remember... The first week, Dr. Michael Brown came and he spoke about why does God allow suffering? And last week, I spoke about is Jesus the only way? Today, Prem is going to come and he's going to share with us um, how we can look at the things in the universe and understand science, the Bible, and how we know that God exists through these things. Tonight, he's going to come back and he's going to do a seminar from 6 to 8 o'clock in the evening. And I know after you hear him today, you're going to want to come back with some tough questions. We're going to take one hour, and he's going to teach us a little bit more so that he can reinforce our strength and our faith and reinforce us. And then the second half uh, of the seminar, he's going to answer questions. I want to encourage you to bring your young people with you. On, on uh, Friday night, we had over 100 people that gathered together, mostly young people, teenagers, and college students, and praying, help them to strengthen their faith through apologetics. And so I want to encourage you to call up your neighbors, call up your friends, and bring your young people. If you have teenagers, you have children, bring them out tonight. Like last week I said, don't give them a choice. Tell them they have to come because this is something they need to learn because they're going to go into college Many of them secular colleges. And listen to this. This is a scary statistic. 80% of the children who go to college, secular colleges, they actually walk away from their faith. And it's not because they don't have a verifiably credible faith. It's because they've never heard praying help them out when it comes to knowing if there is a God, evolution, science, and the Bible. Let's give Dr. Prame, a big hand as he comes and helps us to understand all these things. The doctor is in the house. Thank you, Pastor Steve. Good morning, everyone. So just to make things clear, I, I don't, I'm not a doctor. You can call me Brother Prame and that would be more than sufficient. <laughs> But it's a pleasure to be here back in my, what was my home church for six years. Uh, we came here, my wife and I came here in 90, 1997, I believe, early 97. And uh, we were blessed to be part of the congregation until uh, 2003, at which point we 
left to go down to Charlotte, North Carolina. And I took the six-year route to finish a two-year degree because I had my regular job and family as well. And since then, God's just been blessing me with uh, opportunities to spend time with young people, especially, but also in churches with adults to, and, uh, to do my part to encourage them in, uh, in their faith. And um, one note before I begin, uh, uh, this is a personal motivation for me, what I'm going to share as to why I, I do these sorts of seminars. I grew up in a nominally Christian home. So we were Christians, but for me it was just more of a, a tradition that I saw my community follow. That I didn't feel I had any really vital faith. And by the time I was eight or nine, I was just a curious kid and I wanted to know how things worked and where everything came from. And uh, I used to read the Bible every Sunday, go to church, uh, go to Sunday school, just like most uh, uh, children coming from Christian homes. And I was familiar with the creation story. But I started learning about evolution when I was about eight and a half, nine years old. My mother is a biology professor. So I learned how the theory of evolution was supposed to work from my mom. And uh, she had not really given thought to does, the, does evolution conflict with the Bible or not. That's not something that she had actually sat and thought about. So her, uh, she left those questions unanswered for me. So I learned how evolution worked, but then I was left to myself to try and put Christianity and evolution together. And I felt it couldn't be put together. So I would ask questions of people whom I knew, uh, adults in my life, uh, who were from uh, a church-going background, and I've talked to some pastors as well, and essentially didn't get good responses. They were, they were not open to this sort of approach of defending the Christian faith. So the idea was, well, if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to believe blindly without any reason. And many people are able to do that up to a certain point. But we have to ask ourselves, is that, firstly, what is the effect of having a faith that is not based and grounded in reason? Because we are reasonable creatures. Anytime we go outside and drive on the road or transact business or um, go to the doctor, as the case may be, we are using our minds and we, we are using reason. So t this morning what we want to do is talk about the impact of evolution. Uh, within this time period, we can't cover everything that we would want to cover in terms of showing why evolution is wrong. But I want to get started by showing you how important this, this subject is, from, both from a scriptural standpoint and from a social standpoint. So you, we can have some idea what the theory of evolution has done to modern society, starting with the Western world, but also other parts of the world. So the, the message today is entitled, The Challenge of an Evolutionary Worldview. So if we can move to the next slide, please. I think I've already covered the answer to this. Why bother with this subject on a Sunday morning? Well, I think it's really important because it changes people's lives. But to answer this from this, the scripture would be better. So on the next slide, we have our central scripture verse for this morning. 
the book of Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8. So this is Paul the Apostle writing to the church um, of the Colossians. And the scripture says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to, the, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits or elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So, a couple of observations on this verse. The first observation, the effect of incorrect philosophy is captivity. If you believe or get involved with philosophy that is not correct, the end result is captivity, which is sort of an older term for what we would call this, this morning slavery. Mental slavery. Our minds descend into this sort of mental dungeon and we are not able to think with freedom about God, about ourselves, about life, about the world, about the past, about the future, pretty much about anything. So, see to it that no one takes you captive. Now, the phrase see to it is in the imperative. So in grammar, we have the imperative tense, which simply means it's a command. It would be the same, as, same tense as uh, if I were to say, go here, or come here, or stand, or sit. It's a command, it's an order. So here, the word of God is constructed in the form of an imperative. This is a command for us. We are to make sure that we are not captured by wrong ideas. But how will we know how to avoid wrong ideas if we don't know something about them? I mean, how can I say to you, you need to avoid this sort of, this particular, eating this particular food? when you don't know what that food is. And if you, someone were to give it to you, you wouldn't be able to recognize it. Well, obviously, for you to be able to avoid something, you have to know at least a little bit about it. And so I think it is important for Christians to realize that the mind is as much an instrument by which we ought to serve God as our body. So whether it's the mind or the body, both have to be engaged, both have to be working within parameters, within how God wants them to work for us to be able to serve God acceptably. So let's go to the next slide here. So to love God, you must think correctly. Matthew 22 and verse 37, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and here it is, with all your mind. So this assumes some kind of instruction, some kind of training. Now the training can be positive or it can be negative, and both are important. It's like a, a, a football game. You have offense, they have a positive goal they're trying to achieve, and then there's defense. Defense is when you see the, the, your opponent trying to gain ground that you should not be giving up. And so you defend your position. So, but the positive side would be you pursuing the goal to get to the other side. So I like to think of 
the offense side as the teaching of scripture. It is through the word of God that we grow and learn. So the preaching and teaching of the Bible is the best way for us to make progress in knowing how to serve God. Yet, there is another side to it, which is that we are going to be attacked by false ideas coming into the church through the simple fact that our children go to college and they are being programmed by false ideas. So we have to defend against those false ideas and hold our position. So that's what we're going to learn how to do through what we hear this morning and, all, and especially what we hear this evening. So next, uh, next slide. In the book of Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, the scripture says again, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now the first verse of uh, Romans chapter 12 actually talks about presenting our bodies together as a corporate group. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. And then the very next verse talks about our minds. So the body and the mind are to be involved in worshiping God. So if you, are, if you think it's necessary to train the body by exercise and by going to a gym, it follows that it's necessary to train the mind to be able to think well. So if you can move on to the next slide. I'm sure that at Bethlehem, just based on conversations I've had with Pastor Steve, knowing his, his uh, desire for uh, integrating apologetics with reaching out to people and doing evangelism, that he has more, on more than one occasion talked about the idea of a worldview. So, but in case there, there are those of us present today, I'll just take one or two minutes to touch on that and then we move on to our main topic. So firstly, what is a worldview? We, because here this morning we're here to talk about the evolutionary worldview and contrast it with the Christian worldview. So a worldview is the way we look at the world without knowing that this is the way we look at the world. So it is a set of assumptions or presuppositions by which we see the world, by which we see life and by which we see all of reality, what it means to be human, what it what happens to us when we die, what is good, what is bad, how do you separate the two. These assumptions then guide us in our decision making. So the way you see the world conditions you a certain way and then you use that, con you, you get conditioned, habituated a certain way and then you make decisions based on what you believe on the inside. Next slide please. We are usually unaware of these assumptions and presuppositions. So it's like going to, you know, maybe a four-year-old and asking the four-year-old about uh, whether she knows that she has a liver. Well, of course she doesn't know that she has a liver. She's never thought about it, never seen one. But that doesn't mean she doesn't have a liver. Because all, all human beings have a liver. We just don't think about it. And many of us don't know what a liver is. So these assumptions that are in our mind are like that, often. Unless we consciously think about them, 
we don't know that they're there and, that, and we don't know that they're influencing how we see the world. So we all have a worldview, just like we all have a liver or a heart. So that's not the question, whether you have a worldview today. Of course you have a worldview. And yes, you're probably not aware of it unless you've been thinking about this for a while. The question is, do you have a good worldview or not? Do you have the right worldview or not? Okay, so from here we start getting into our main topic. So if we can move to the next slide. Um, a worldview tries to answer four questions and you would have asked the, all four of these questions many times in your life from your childhood. So it's a universal part, it's a, it's a part of human experience and human growth all across the world. The first question is where did I come from? So, simple enough. Have you ever asked that question? As a child, where did I come from? Where did the world come from? Where did everything come from? The second question is how do I separate right from wrong? How do I separate good from bad? How do I know what's good and what's bad? How do I, how do, I do that? In general, but also in every specific situation I find myself, I ask the question, how do I know what's right to do? No one can escape asking this question. Whether we get to answer it correctly or not is a different matter, but we all end up asking this question. The third question is, what is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? Is there any meaning to my life? And the fourth question is, what will happen to me when I die? And this is the question of destiny. Do I have a future? Is there something for me after this life? So every worldview tries to answer this question, whether successfully or unsuccessfully, whether partially or completely. Next slide, please. So that today we want to talk about two worldviews which are in conflict with each other. They are contradictory ways of thinking, and you can't think well if you accept some of one and some of another, because that, that would cause a contradiction in you and leave you with some level of confusion. So what are the two worldviews? The first worldview is the worldview of evolution. It's also called naturalism, and we'll define that in a little bit. So we're going to learn a few new words this morning. One of them is worldview, the other one is naturalism. The second is what we call the Judeo-Christian worldview. And if you've been listening and responding to good preaching for any length of time, you've been learning the, the Judeo-Christian worldview. It's been happening even if you didn't call it that. It's God working in your life, showing you truth through the scriptures. And when you believe what you, what you receive from, from the Bible as a trusted authority, your worldview is being slowly changed. But oftentimes, even though that's positive instruction, we also need how to learn how to defend ourselves against deception. And we know that from the verse that we read, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Scripture puts the responsibility on us, saying, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and vain deceit. Next, next slide, please. So think of a house. For a house to exist, there must be something else holding the house up. What do, we, what do we refer to that? The foundation. 
So in the same way it is with houses, so it is with ideas. Some ideas cannot exist by themselves. They, you have to believe something else first. And that other idea is like a foundational idea that holds up the, uh, the, the first idea that we were talking about. So you can't talk about the house first without talking about the foundation that's underneath. Can you see the foundation of your house? It's invisible, but it's there. And it's solid, or at least, shall we say, we hope it's solid. Okay, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, talked about what happens to people who build their houses without a foundation. And he was actually talking in that context about his teaching, his positive instruction, his word. That if you build your life on his word, that will become like a foundation. So here we see that the, there is a theory of evolution that you can, uh, you can see when you go to pick up a, a, a biology textbook or a textbook on astronomy. But the theory of evolution comes to us as if it is science, as if it is scientific knowledge. But the truth is, this is a house which has a foundation underneath which is hidden. And unless you show the foundation to be false, it's very difficult to convince people that the structure on top of it is also false. So the, the, the philosophy under, under, underneath evolution is called naturalism. So what does naturalism mean? It basically is an assumption or belief that cannot be tested. Science cannot tell you whether naturalism is false any more than a house can hold up its foundation. Why can a house not hold up its foundation? Because the foundation is busy holding up the house. So the house doesn't prove the foundation as such or hold it up. Rather, the foundation is what's holding the house up. So science cannot prove naturalism to be true. It assumes naturalism is true for it to sit on top of it. And I'm talking about evolutionary science, particularly. So naturalism is a, so what do we mean by naturalism? Because we have to introduce a new word this morning, naturalism. What is the meaning of it? Well, how do you define it? It's very simple. It just means, it's a, it's a claim that says there are no forces at work in the universe except the forces of nature. So think of the ancient times, even pre-Christian times, and even times after Christ in other cultures, all the way up till today, those are called pre-modern cultures, people believe that the forces of nature themselves are somehow connected to various gods, or that there are demons operating that cause all sorts of effects. And there are many religions where people worship ancestral spirits, thinking that these spirits are responsible for the effects in our lives and for the effects we see in the world. So that would be the pre-modern world. And so we've since then changed and come to a place where we say there are no spirits, there are no demons, there's nothing supernatural, there's just simply the forces of nature. Gravity, electricity, magnetism, nuclear energy, these sorts of things. And this is all there is. And all the matter, all the stuff in the world, it gets pushed around through these forces. And so we have to explain everything that happens through these forces. 
You can't use an explanation like, well, God did this, or God created, or God did a miracle. You can use those sorts of terms like God, angels, demons. So this is a philosophy. Now, how did they arrive at that philosophy? Did science show them that philosophy is true? Can you do an experiment to show that there is no God? Of course not. Rather, evolution is sitting on the philosophy. The philosophy isn't proven by evolution. So this is being accepted. So every evolutionist is also a naturalist. They have made a decision before they did any science. They have made a decision to believe that there is no God. And that decision then becomes a foundation for them to try and explain everything without God. So naturalism is the equivalent of atheism, which is the denial of a being who's above nature, a being that is not subject to the laws of nature. That is to say, a supernatural being. The next slide, please. So in brief, let's talk about the house now. We just spent some time talking about the foundation. We want to talk about the house, which is the theory of evolution that sits on that foundation. The theory of evolution, I will not spend a lot of time on this because here this morning I really want to expose what, what the impact of evolution has been. Not so much how evolution works. There is an assumption in the theory of evolution and it has to do with how living things came to be. Note carefully that the theory of evolution is not about how life came about on Earth. The very first living thing, the way in which that living thing came about, is not what the theory of evolution is about. Evolution no, uh, offers no uh, explanation whatsoever for life having come into the world in the first place. Rather, evolution is about how one living creature, or one living organism, changes into another living organism. But as for where the first living organism came from, the theory of evolution is silent. There's another theory called spontaneous generation, which says that basically the first living thing came out of some kind of pond of slime by itself, through chemical reactions. It, the right chemicals were there and some sort of molecule was formed and this molecule started making copies of itself in the same way that in our bodies we have DNA and the DNA in, this, in the cell is responsible for the cell to reproduce itself, which is to say to make copies of itself. And so this started somehow happening by itself. But that's not really a par part of evolutionary theory, but it is an assumption. So evolution assumes, assumes there's at least one living thing to begin with. That doesn't explain where that living thing comes from. So according to the theory of evolution, all living things have a common ancestor. It's not just that all humans have some common ancestor, but humans and frogs and potatoes and peaches and fireflies and scorpions all have one common ancestor. So that's one of the main beliefs of evolution. Then this organism or the ancestor, the design of the, of the animal or plant, we refer to that design itself as an organism. So that organism changed slowly over time to produce all the living things that we see today. 
given enough time, millions and millions of years. So uh, next slide, please. A new, another new term. If you're going to start understanding evolution, there will be one or two new terms for us, for us to pick up. So how does evolution happen? Well, it happens through mutation. A mutation is simply another word for a change. Remember that mutations in themselves are things that we can, in fact, see. You can see uh, when people have, uh, when people are born, unfortunately, with uh, birth defects, as an example. It's due to some copying mistake in the DNA. When the DNA was being copied at the time when the child was conceived, there's some kind of mistake that enters in, and so it changes the way the body of the child looks. So these are mutations. Well, according to evolution, a random change in the DNA is a mutation, and many of these mutations add up over time to produce new animals. So a fish that cannot breathe air, the organism undergoes mutations over time, randomly, and then a lot of these mutations develop, and so the, the animal appears to change across generations, little by little, until it becomes able to breathe air, and then uh, its fins become legs and starts walking out of the water and climbing trees, sprouting wings and flying, if you give it enough time. So, now it's easy for those of us who, who have not seriously studied evolution to think, well, how silly. But if you are 16 or 17 and you're in college, surrounded by an ac academia, by professors with PhDs and 20 years of research behind them, suddenly we don't feel like laughing. We feel like, wow, I never thought of it that way. Yeah, it's true that uh, fish and frogs and humans and chimpanzees all have a backbone. Um, we all have uh, two eyes. There's a lot of similarity. So how did the similarity come about? How is it that a fish has a backbone and I have a backbone? I mean, how did that happen? So the more you think about it, the more you realize the answer doesn't lie in finding out, how, finding out how to demolish the house. You have to find out how to demolish the foundation, not just show that there's something wrong with the house. If you take the foundation out, then the house will collapse. But if you don't learn how to do that, then we're just going to be pointing out bits and pieces, you know, here and there about evolution, but we won't really be able to show why the whole thing doesn't hold together. So we have these mutations, and then we also have something else called natural selection, which means that now you, now you have like a variety of, of uh, animals. Some animals are weaker and others are stronger, and likewise plants. Some plants are less resistant to disease, others are more resistant to disease. And then you just have the environmental conditions around, around them, which is the weather, the food supply, the water supply, and predators that would kill the animal or feed on certain plants. Well, whichever animals are able to survive, they're the ones who are going to be able to be there long enough for them to reproduce. And the other animals will die out. So the, just the environment will weed out all the weak plants and the weak animals. And so 
the, the kinds of animals that come about through mutation get weeded out and only the strong survive. And that's how we get all of life as we see it today. That's the theory of evolution. So with that we'll stop as far as discussing how evolution works and ask ourselves this question, where has evolution led society? Where does it lead us? So next slide please. So these are some of the implications of the evolutionary thinking. So the first one, if we can have the next slide, is the denial of human exclusivity. So here again it's a new phrase, human exclusivity. What do we mean by human exclusivity? Let's go to the next slide. In the Western world, for centuries, what people have believed and taught, or it has been part of the worldview, shall we say, so it's so basic that no one even questioned it, is the following, that human beings are made in God's image and that makes us different and special from or relative to animals and plants. So the scripture says in Genesis 1, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said to them, a few, uh, uh, in the second verse, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So humans are supposed to be above the rest of the creation, above plants, above animals, because we are made in God's image and in his likeness. Moreover, we are made gender specific to two genders, male and female. Well, if the theory of evolution is right, the first thing that goes out the window is the idea that human beings are special and different. So that may seem odd, but that's, that explains a lot of what's happening in society today. So you go to the next slide. We're going to talk a little bit about speciesism. So what in the world is speciesism? Well, it's the extension of something we're all familiar with, which is racism. And it's, there, there's a philosopher in Princeton University who's, who's been advocating this view for years vocally, by writing books and lecturing. So the next, in the next slide, we can see Princeton philosophy, philosopher Peter Singer. Um, what does he argue? That speciesism is wrong like racism is wrong. So that means that me basically taking a cow, putting it on a farm, putting it inside a stall, and then finally growing it up just so I can kill it and eat it and use its skin to make a leather belt for myself is wrong. I'm discriminating against other species the same way as we hold that racism is wrong, that it's wrong to discriminate against another human being of a different quote-unquote race. So because in the same way racism is wrong, it's also wrong to mistreat animals and eat them. 
basically he's arguing for animal rights and he's saying they have as much rights as we do we are not special and it's interesting how the laws in the country have changed because I remember several years ago finding out that there's a certain kind of eagle whose egg is protected every egg that the eagle lays is protected by federal law and there's a five thousand dollar penalty if you if you destroy that particular varieties of eagle's egg however human beings in the womb can be destroyed that's okay but if you destroy an eagle's egg you've committed a federal offense so Peter Singer is going to he wants to influence your really smart bright 17 year old boy or girl whom you're gonna for whom you're gonna save up money and send to college well he wants to influence your children in an ethics class or a sociology class or a biology class because he's gonna write books that are gonna be published worldwide and used in these universities he doesn't have to be present in the, the school that your child goes to his books will be there all animals are equal this is a phrase from Peter Singer and basically this comes because he denies human exclusivity on the basis of evolution if evolution is true we are animals and if all animals are equal what right do we have to say that we should we have the right to kill and eat certain animals or keep them in cages these sorts of things so evolution is actually changing the laws I mean it's not just some people having a strange idea it's, that's not what's happening it's far worse than that next slide please so the denial of human exclusivity is the cause for this sort of thinking so save the whales save the turtles don't bother about saving the children in the womb if we can go to the next slide what about genocide historically genocide has often been linked to racism but nowadays we know of at least one case where the racism was supported by so-called science namely evolution if we can go to the next slide what I'm speaking or what I'm referring to is the Jewish Holocaust so Adolf Hitler prepared Germany for the Holocaust using evolutionary theory so the next slide we'll see or if you can advance one yeah the Jews were considered subhuman and inferior to the Aryans the Aryans as as Hitler defined them were the blue-eyed blonde-haired race typically your typical uh, German ethnic um, anthropology the way most Germans typically would look like so blue-eyed blonde hair meant you were in superior and the Jews were inferior because Hitler believed they had not evolved enough they were closer to the other animals because remember after all at the end of the day we're all animals we're at, on different levels of evolution and so to kill a Jew was not the same thing as to kill uh, uh, an Aryan you it, it was like it was he was trying to argue that it's like getting rid of cockroaches they're not really human so Adolf Hitler actually if you go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington DC you will find a chart that was printed during Hitler's time uh, 
with, based on what Hitler wanted. He, he's the one who wanted this chart printed. And it'll show you the faces of different kinds of, different varieties, so to speak, or races of humans. With the most evolved humans in one part of the page, and what he thought were the less evolved humans in the other part, at the, at the end of the page. And so the Jews showed up in the less evolved part, the Aryans showed up in the most evolved part. He made thousands of copies of this, this chart and distributed it across Germany and brainwashed people into thinking that it is scientific to think in this way. And then said, okay, now we're going to impl implement a program to get rid of the Jewish people. And six million Jews was slaughtered. And he also experimented on human beings. Think about us doing biology lab today. We experiment on animals. We dissect frogs, we dissect a variety of other animals. Well, Adolf Hitler's science R&D team, research and development team, wanted to study the effects of seawater on pilots who might fall into the sea. So to do experiments, they got Jewish prisoners and injected them, into, in, injected seawater directly into their veins and just watched them basically falsely can die several times over to observe them. To, so basically, they use human beings as lab rats, which they justify by saying that, well, these humans are not as evolved. And there are other horror stories as to what went on inside those uh, so-called medical research labs, which I basically, you know, I, you can read about them if you, if you want to, but I'm not going to bring them up here. So Hitler's program was fueled by a strong belief in, in the theory of evolution. And if we can go to the next slide, denying gender distinctions. So remember in Genesis 1.28, it says, in 2027 20, rather, it says, male and female, he created them. Well, if you don't believe that anymore, you actually have to believe that male and female also evolved. So if male and female evolved, we may still be evolving. Who's to say it stops with just male and female? Why couldn't there be a third? or a fourth? Or why could, be, why could you not be partially one and not the other? Perhaps you could look male, and, oh, but on the inside you're female. Perhaps you could look female on the outside, but on the inside you're male. So as you can see, the gay rights movement, we know what they want, but the way in which they argue is to rest on these sorts of evolutionary concepts and ideas Based, based on this understanding that we are all still evolving. And so if we go to the next slide, so now people are questioning male and female. And there are laws, like for example in California there's a law passed that if someone is, uh, who thinks they're homosexual, young, especially a young person, but they see it more like a struggle, like they don't want to be this way, and they they used to get, be able to get therapy to sort of reconvert back into what originally ought to be their sexual orientation. Well, now that's considered oppressive, and so California has banned all those therapies. So 
this sort of confusion is now entering in because people have thrown out the Judeo-Christian worldview and evolution has re started replacing it. So we have homosexual activism. So it's not just that they want, you know, equal rights and they don't want to be bullied and those sorts of things, which I think make, make sense as far as a civil society goes. Of course, one ought not to uh, be violent towards people because they're different. Why they're different? Should they be different? Those are separate questions. I mean, we should not be violent towards them. However, their arguments for uh, behind homosexual activism, many of those arguments are based in the sort of pseudo-scientific theory of evolution. What they're arguing is, hey, get with the program. Science teaches us that we are still evolving, and who's to say we can't have different kinds of genders or combinations of genders, or people with no gender, transgender. Okay, the next uh, point, so that's really what I've been talking about, L uh, LGBT, that's uh, lesbian, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender activism. So people are pushing for rights for these sorts of uh, unions, uh, for special rights for them being able to adopt children, so on and so forth. And if we can go to the next slide. Slavery has been ha linked to evolutionary belief. It's not just that people oppress one another, but when slavery was not yet started, the European explorers who visited the variety of um, countries during the age of exploration thought of all, all the people who are not in the Western world as savages and more like animals. And that's how they saw them. That these are not really developed. Their, their brain size and their forehead and their structure. And so basically using evolutionary scientific arguments to say, well, the, these people are savages. They're not as intelligent. They can't be as intelligent because they haven't fully evolved. And that was undergirding, that became a foundation to justify um, slavery and ra continuing racism and sort of an opinion about certain uh, people groups as not being developed enough or being smart enough as other humans are. So that's another effect. So if we go to the next slide, we're going to bring it to a close here. How does evolution answer the four questions that we ask? So first, the question of origins. We are the product of matter, time, and chance. We are animals. So it's quite interesting. Ravi Zacharias, who's an apologist who defends the Christian faith, was at a university campus when he got asked a question by a young lady in the audience. And the question was that she had an, an atheist friend that she was trying to reach with the gospel. And the atheist friend told her, I'm a woman, and I find the Bible to be very anti-female, and that it supports the oppression of women. And when I read about how God told Eve that her pain in childbirth will be multiplied because of the, the, the sin that they committed, I don't want to be a part of that kind of religion that puts women down. I'm, I, and so I, I'm, I'm going to be an atheist. How do I answer her? So Ra Ravi Zachariah said, well, okay, so 
It appears you think you're valuable and important, which is why you're upset that you think the Bible is devaluing you and saying something you know, disrespectful about you. But if you're an atheist and you believe in evolution, you're just a blob. That's what they teach you. Who are you? Well, you're just the same as slime and mud, but organized differently. You're a product of matter, time, and chance. Randomly, you're an accident. You don't even belong here. You just showed up through struggle, through ages of struggle. So, and then he went on to show how in the, book of, in the Garden of Eden, when you have God appearing, like manifesting himself to you and giving you a perfect environment, and you didn't even have a sinful tendency, that of course when you sin against the light, God holds you accountable in a, in a more drastic way than when you sin without a, uh, without a lot of light, without a lot of knowledge. And he, he, he went through the scriptures to show that Christianity actually elevates humans, I'm sorry, elevates women. Whether all Christians at all times have followed what the Bible said, that's a different story. But what God has said in his word is the equality of the genders. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. Both male and female are made in the image of God. So let God be true and let every man be a liar. The scripture is clear that as a whole, the Bible does not put women down. It may take you a lifetime to understand all that the Bible has to say about it, but that's the truth. The next question, morality. There is no absolute morality. Only animal desires. And these can change as we evolve. So who's to say that right and wrong as defined 2,000 years ago by a man named Jesus still applies today because we society has evolved humans are still evolving our right and wrong does not need to be the same right and wrong as the time of Moses so there is no there are, and because of naturalism there's no God so all this right and wrong is just something to do with our brain the way our brain evolved so it's not absolute and all we have is at the end of the day our desires which are, which are programmed by our DNA. So our morality is based on our desires, which, is, which describes society today. People sincerely believe you should do what feels good. Why hurt yourself? And you, you can actually see how opposed it is to the Christian view because Jesus said when he was calling people to follow him, if any man will come after me, let him pick up his cross and say no to himself. deny himself daily that's and it's a hypothetical if you will come if you will be my disciple or if you will follow me this is what this is how to do it so saying no to our desires is sort of the bedrock of being a disciple of Jesus how different from saying if it feels good do it the third question is the question of meaning there's no absolute meaning to your life because you didn't show up here for anything so there's nothing, no meaning to acquire 
And if there's no meaning, really, you can create your own meaning. You can find meaning in whatever you want. You can have your private meaning, but don't tell me that what you think is meaningful is applicable to me. There's no generally true things that are meaningful for, for everybody. And we can evolve. And as we evolve, you know, for a lesbian person, meaning may be different. For a transgender person, it's different. For a bisexual person, it's different. And then finally, the final question is one of destiny. Uh, if we can go back one, yeah. Basically, what will happen to me when I die? Or what will happen to us when we die? Well, we're going to vanish. We're going to disappear because the worms are going to eat our body and our bones will crumble and that's it. There isn't anything else. So if you don't have any hope for the future, according to the Bible, that actually changes the way you're going to live now. There's no need or concept of holiness that can be sustained. Because we find out that uh, the Apostle Paul, talking about the resurrection, he, he says, if in, only in this world we have hope, meaning if Jesus did not rise from the grave and there's no second world to which we are going where we'll get new bodies and be free of sin, if that's not true because Jesus didn't rise from the grave, then we have hope only in this world. Then he says, we as Christians are of all men most miserable. And, he, and he, then he quotes uh, uh, one of the pagan poets and says, let us eat and drink and play for tomorrow we die. In other words, the party's going to end soon. And there's nothing afterward. So let's party harder. Because that's all there is. But belief in a destiny, in a future means you're, going to, you're waiting for Christ to come back. There is a reward when he comes back. Your physical body will be, you'll be given a new body. There is another life. There are relationships. And so you want to constrain yourself. This is only the subway ride. It's not the final stop. So if you don't find a good seat, don't stress about it. The ride will be over soon and you'll get off and you'll be home. But there's no home to go to. Then, so you can see where this is going. So people are being told this. Children, are, your kids are going to be told this. And every other subject that hasn't anything to do with science is going to be taught from an evolutionary worldview. And then the next slide is our last slide. What are the Christian answers to the same four questions? The question of origins. We're made in God's image. We're, not, we're different from animals. So that makes us exclusive. We are both body and spirit. And here's another thing. Evolution doesn't justify there being any spirit within you. You're just a mass of chemicals. That's it. But the Christian view is that you're both body and spirit. There's a part of you that will survive death. There's a part of you that will perish in death. And even that part will be restored back at the resurrection. And we are male and female. The origin of gender is in God, not in evolution. The idea of male and female is God's idea. The next point, morality. Morality is based on God's nature. And Friday we were talking about how God's nature does not change. It's completely constant. So morality is based on God's nature because we are made in God's image. So our morality ought to reflect His nature. 
And the reason why we do things or not don't do things has to be based on that. As an example, when God talks to Noah, when Noah comes out of the ark after the flood, he tells Noah that murder should be punished and he justifies it. God gives him a reason. So it's interesting, sometimes God doesn't give us reasons. He gives us, gives us commands, but he doesn't give, give us reasoning behind it. But sometimes he gives us a command and he gives us a reason. And in this case, murder is wrong because it says, in the image of God, he made man. Who, whoever sheds the man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. And in the book of James, it talks about taming the tongue. And it talks about people who use the tongue to bless God on the one hand and curse their fellow man on the other hand. And right there in that verse it says, how can you do that knowing that those people you're cursing are made in the image of God? So the image of God is the basis for all our right and wrong. Because we're in God's image, we look to God's nature, which never changes, and we find morality from his nature. And the third is meaning. Meaning is found in communion with God. The greatest commandment above all, if you want meaning in your life, is to love God more than you love anything. You will find ultimate meaning even if you undergo, um, you don't get your gratification right away, but in the long run you find ultimate meaning in the highest possible relationship between you and the highest being, God, and in loving relationships with each other. The greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart. The second commandment is like the first, love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever, as long as you're pursuing these two, you're going to find meaning. You're also going to find meaning in God's love, which is shown to you through Jesus dying on the cross. That's what you have going for you. That's what we ought to pursue. That's how we find meaning. Once you have that, then other things, you can enjoy the, a walk in the park, you can enjoy the beach, you can enjoy good food, you can enjoy being a musician. Go, you can go for it. But what, what, what will anchor you first is your relationship with God and relationship with others. And then the fourth one is destiny. We will live forever in new bodies, in conscious happiness with God, or in torment without Him. So scripture says God has appointed a day for judgment when he'll judge the world by, by the person whom he's appointed, which is Christ. And it's, scripture says we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's appointed unto each of us once to die, and after this is the judgment. Then comes a reward. We will all be resurrected. There's the resurrection of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous. And so the unrighteous will be put in a place where they want to be because they've always said no to God and the righteous are going to be given what they wanted which is more of God so ultimately everybody ends up where they have willed and desired and wanted so that's the future that's that's our destiny so you can see why it falls to us as parents or future parents to do our part in learning how to defend the Christian faith and pass that on to our children. So that's, that's really the presentation for this morning. I hope you will come back in the evening because we're going to have time to answer any questions that you may have. So if you know others who would be interested in this subject, please do invite them. And thank you for having me. Bless. Wow. Wow. Let's give Prima an awesome hand. That was thank phenomenal. You. Thank you. Wonderful. Wonderful.
Thank you, Pastor Steve. That was incredible. Come on, let's give him a big hand. That was incredible. Incredible. Thank you. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Everyone, everyone under the age of 19, please stand. Everyone under the age of 19, please stand. Everybody under the age of 19, please stand. Look at me, young people. You are not an accident. You are not a product of chance or random matter. God loves you. He has a plan for your life. God has created you as an individual and you are greatly loved by God. And we pray for you young people that you will be ambassadors, emissaries of the truth. That you will be strong, courageous, knowledgeable, and you will be filled with God's love. Lord, we thank you for our young people. Bless them. Be with them and strengthen them today. In Jesus' name, amen. Can you all stand with these young people?